I think I'm going to do what they say guest speakers are never supposed to do, and that is kind of rearrange the furniture. So if you don't mind, maybe easier to ask permission than forgiveness, right? So, <laughs> or forgiveness and permission, maybe the opposite. So, yeah, I want to keep it a little more informal, so I'll just be a little bit closer to you here this, this morning. Um, perhaps some of you are familiar with uh, RHMA, um, the organization that several of us who have been uh, providing pulpit supply for you all this summer, uh, we have the privilege of working together. And uh, we are a ministry that is all about uh, rural communities all across the country. Our, we, we have uh, a staff of church planters and pastors who are serving in various places all around the country. Um, we, are, uh, we host small-town pastors' conferences and uh, seminars. Uh, we're preparing the next generation of town and country pastors through what we call our TACT program. TAC stands for Town and Country Training. It's a partnership that we have with a number of seminaries across the country, including Dallas Seminary, in uh, just uh, providing uh, accredited classes for students who anticipate going into small-town ministry after they graduate from seminary. And just last month, we launched a uh, Doctor of Ministry cohort as a partnership with Dallas Seminary, and yes, your pastor, Trey, was in class. And uh, if you want to hear what kind of a student he was, you can come and talk to me afterwards. So, <laughs> uh, With my life being totally immersed in all things small town, uh, you can just imagine that uh, I tend to look at things through small town lenses, and uh, that's certainly true when I read the Bible. If I come across something that's uh, kind of related to small towns, it just tends to leap off the pages at me. And a good example of this would be uh, John chapter 1, where um, we find that uh, Philip uh, finds Nathaniel, verse 45, And he says to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. To which Nathanael replies, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Philip here bullet points a resume like no other. We have found the person that Moses wrote about. The pers- this person is the one that the prophets prophesied about. He's from the lineage of Joseph, which would be the kingly line. He is the one. He is the long-awaited Messiah. But all that hits Nathaniel's ears is Nazareth. Now, what's wrong with Nazareth? There's been a lot of speculation over the years, but as I've taken a closer look at this, I've come to a very simple conclusion. And that conclusion is that Nazareth 
was normal. It was a small town, like hundreds of others dotting the countryside, nothing distinctive about it, not world-class anything, not leading the nation in anything. It had a bit of a reputation, but doesn't every small town. Um, It was a pretty ordinary place, at least to outsiders. I'm pretty sure that if... uh, If you lived in Nazareth, you'd be pretty proud of your town, probably like these folks in Philo, Illinois. I don't know if you can read that. Their water tower says the center of the the universe. I'm pretty sure the people in Nazareth would have probably looked at their town very much the same way. But for everyone else, Nazareth was a place with common people, and that was a problem because It was not the kind of place for the Messiah to be from. Now, here in central Illinois, um, we live close to normal. Um, I'm sure you've heard that much-told story that we just love to repeat time and again about the young lady from Oblong who took a liking to a young man from Normal and pretty soon their engagement announcement appears in the local paper, Oblong woman to marry Normal man. (laughs) And uh, thank you for laughing at that because you probably heard that one like a thousand times. Nazareth was the, the Normal of Palestine. It was the kind of place that uh, didn't have a whole lot to celebrate, but once a year they'd come together to celebrate anyway, just like most every small town does today. And how timely, I went through Cisna Park and downtown, there's all kinds of rides and things that are being assembled, and I hear you have an old settlers reunion coming up here in a few days. Uh, that's That's a wonderful time. I imagine it's something very close to what we experience in Morton. Um, We like to call ourselves the pumpkin capital of the world. I don't know if that's really true or not, but uh, we do have the Libby's plant in Morton. We can about 80 to 90 percent of the pumpkins. And uh, once a year, uh, in fact in September now, uh, we will be hosting our annual pumpkin festival. Uh, So you all come. Uh, You're welcome to come. Uh, One of my hats is being a part of the Chamber of Commerce, so I'm here representing them this morning. Um, Nazareth was the kind of people that, or a place that maybe people would tell jokes about. You know, you might be from Nazareth if your mayor is also the barber and the garbage collector and the insurance salesman. Um, You might be from Nazareth if your pickup breaks down out in the country and word gets back to town before you do, Um, and on and on you can go. What was wrong with Nazareth? Well, I have to think that maybe it was just a little too normal. You know, it's, it's a good thing that I was not 
on the committee that planned our Lord's birth and life and ministry. Because I think that uh, I would probably think something like this. I would think this is the King of Kings, this is the Lord of glory, this is the creator of all. Surely he should be born in maybe the seat of power, maybe something like Rome. But then come to think of it, he is also the divine logos, the wisdom from above, the truth, the light. Maybe he should be born in the city of intellectualism. Maybe Athens. But then he's also the high priest. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe he should be born in the seat of religion. Maybe Jerusalem. But there wasn't a committee. And God in his wisdom decided that his son would enter the world in an unassuming place called Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem very simply means house of bread. It dates all the way back to King David's great-grandpa, Boaz, who lived in an area not terribly unlike what we have here, only they had wheat and uh, barley fields. And when they harvested, they needed a place to process the grain, and Bethlehem became that place. They built threshing floors. They built rooms to store the grain, house of bread. Today, we would name it grain elevator. So when God entered the world in the person of his son, he came into this little one motel agricultural town, a few hundred at most in population, like thousands of towns dotting the countryside of the U.S. today, Cisna Park being one of them. The place of Christ's birth was about as normal as it comes. You know, Jesus didn't stay in Grain Elevator. His family settled in Nazareth, also a town of just a few hundred. And doing what? Well, we know that Jesus' father, Joseph, was a tectone, which is usually translated carpenter, But carpenters back then, for the most part, didn't do the kinds of things that we think of carpenters doing today. They didn't have wood frame houses, for instance. Um, So um, a church father helps us out from that era. He tells us that the bread and butter of a tectone was ox accessories, yokes, plows, harrows, carts. So Jesus, from the time that he was just a little boy until he was about 30, worked in a farm implement place. So Jesus was born in a town named Grain Elevator, and he spent most of his working life in a John Deere dealership. Can anything good come out of a place like this? Well, maybe Abraham Lincoln got it right. 
Paraphrasing, Lincoln said, God must love normal people because he made so many of them. Could it be that God showed his love for normal people by determining that his son would come and live among them? And could it be that God also delights in using normal people? For some reason, God didn't plan that just a few elite, talented, and extra smart people would do the lion's share of his work. But rather that each of us normal people would do the work of God around us in our own unassuming way in whatever little slice of the world we find ourselves. Now, to champion this, I want to ask you a few uh, trivia questions. Um, You probably didn't come to church this morning thinking you were going to have to take a quiz. Uh, But here we go. And here's the first question. Of all the churches that the Apostle Paul wrote to in the New Testament, which was located in the smallest town? So you can think about some. You know that Rome doesn't qualify or Thessalonica Well, the answer is actually the Colossian church. So the town of Colossae was surrounded by pastures and fields. For a time, it had been a thriving and much bigger town because it was located on a main trade route that linked Ephesus and the Mediterranean coast with Persia. But then the town's fortunes changed when the the road was rerouted and Colossae was bypassed. In the process, the historian Strabo tells us that Colossae became an out-of-the-way, declining, obscure, small town. Now, what about the church at Colossae? Was it a renowned flagship church in its day? Think about Some of the flagship churches back then, there would have been Jerusalem, certainly, the founding church. Um, uh, uh, Athens would have been the missionary sending church. Think about flagship churches today. Colossae would not have made the list, nor would the church that I attend back in Morton. This was an unassuming under-the-radar kind of church. In fact, a couple of verses tell us that it was a small house church. And furthermore, for several hundred years before the first century, when Paul sent his letter to Colossae, not a single event worthy of note is connected with Colossae. There was no historical marker in town. No one bothered to raise the blinds on the tour bus as they drove through town. What am I describing? Normal. My hope is that Paul's perspective on normal will teach us and encourage us this morning. With that in mind, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians. As you do, I have a second 
trivia quiz for you this morning. Um, the small town of Colossae was actually the recipient of two letters from the Apostle Paul that we have in our New Testament. Now, if you've been with me so far, you know that I already gave you a hint on this one. Uh, Philemon was actually a prominent citizen of Colossae and a member of, of the church there. So this small town uh, church got two letters from Paul. That's pretty significant, I would say. So what does Paul think of normal? Let's start reading at the beginning of his letter, and let's see. So let's start with chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, in just a moment, we're going to see that Paul was actually very measured in his use of this word faithful, which makes it doubly significant to see him using it here in reference to those who are in in some of the most obscure and smallest of places. You know, my kids tease me all the time for my affection because of my affection for small towns. Uh, They will say that dad will not go out to eat unless it's in a small town cafe. And uh, they'll say that I won't watch a movie unless it's about a small town. Um, What I love most about small towns is what Paul mentions here in verse 1. It's the kind of people I meet, unpretentious, quietly living their Christian lives, i found that small towns are repositories of faithful people. In verse 3, we find Paul heaping more words of praise on this small town church. He tells them that he's thankful for them. In verses 4 and 5, he commends them for their faith and love. Verse 6, for their fruitful ministry. So this little spot in the road is not viewed by Paul as being second-rate. He's not saying if you could just be more like the church in Jerusalem or Chicago. He has enormous praise for this church. He sees qualities here that are worth commending. They may not have a 40-acre campus or a multi-million dollar budget or services, multiple services attended by thousands. Uh, Their pastor may not have 50,000 followers on Twitter. Um, But you know what? Those things don't seem to matter to Paul. Do you know what's really good about this letter? There is no but. I have all these nice things to say, all these commendable things, but... Now, Paul uses that word when he writes some other churches, doesn't he? Especially maybe the church at Corinth, but it's not here. Paul continues with, com- with, with gushing commendation for these folks who are quietly serving in normal. So, before we go on, everybody look up at me now. I don't want you to be cheating because this is a, another quiz question. So, a key church leader is named in Colossians. Who, who was he? You know, I was a graduate of Dallas Seminary. I don't think I could have answered this question. 
who's actually a fellow by the name of Epaphras. Uh, We see his name in verse 7. Paul says, you learned it from Epaphras. So Epaphras was the one who was used of God to nurture these commendable qualities that we've been reading about, but I would venture to say that probably most of us here today didn't know his name. Just like most of our names are probably not known beyond the county line. Notice how Paul describes Epaphras in verse 7. He calls him our beloved fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ. Now, can you imagine receiving or hearing any better words from probably the most well-known Christian of the day? Beloved. Paul has affection for this man. He calls him a fellow servant, no condescension, no viewing Epaphras as a lesser guy because he's from normal. What I see here is Paul viewing him as an equal in ministry. He is a fellow servant. Years ago when I was pastoring in Corn, Oklahoma, sounds kind of corny, doesn't it? Um, Not a stitch of corn except maybe in people's gardens, but that's a whole other story. You can tell that Main Street is a happening place. And from an aerial view in that bottom left corner, that's the whole town. So not a a very big place. But would you believe that one day uh, Warren Wearsby showed up in Corn, Oklahoma, uh, came and spoke in our church? Um. I think most of you know him, author of more about 200 books, uh, internationally known speaker. Um, soon after he came to Corn, I received a letter from him. This was before email. And then another, and then another. We've communicated now for more than 30 years. I have a file folder, an inch thick of letters that I've received from him. At some point, it became more phone calls than letters up until what proved to be our last conversation on the phone just a few weeks ago. Uh, My wife and I attended his funeral in in Lincoln back back in June. Interestingly, after a couple of years of corresponding, at the end of a letter, he added a P.S. He said, the next time you write... Please make dear Dr. and Mrs. Wearsby into dear Warren and Betty. It takes a lot less energy. Now, what was he doing? He was doing what Paul is doing. Treating me like a fellow servant, an equal, though his ministry was exponentially bigger than mine. A beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister, can a person from normal be considered just as faithful in Christ's service as a person from a bigger place? Are the words, well done, good and faithful servant, proportionate to size or place? Renowned theologian and apologist Francis Schaeffer, I think, captures Paul's heart here. With these words, in God's sight, 
there are no little people and no little places. Now, a few minutes ago, I said that Paul was measured in his use of this word faithful. In verse 1, he used it in a plural sense, uh, that there were many faithful believers in this church. Would you believe that Paul only used this word in this way with one other church that he wrote to in the New Testament? And I find it interesting that in all of Paul's letters, he refers to only four individuals as being faithful. And would you believe that all four have connections to Colossae, which brings another trivia question. Who are the three connected to Colossae that Paul commends for being faithful? And again, because so many faithful people are mostly unknown, uh, you probably don't know the answer to this question either. The other three are also mentioned in Colossae. Timothy, in the salutation, kind of Paul's right-hand man, Tychicus. He was the mail carrier who delivered the letter, which was no small feat. It was about a 1,000 miles from Rome where Paul was, uh, much of it over water. And then Paul calls Onesimus faithful, the runaway slave from Colossae. Now, what am I doing? I assure you that I'm not trying this morning to put normal people on a pedestal or small-town people on a pedestal. I'm not trying to make a case that people in normal are more faithful than people in bigger places The case that I'm trying to make is that location or size does not factor into how faithful a person is deemed to be in the eyes of God. You know, this ought to hearten us because Scripture tells us that God's eternal reward for each of us will be distributed on the basis of our faithfulness. Now, there are some hints in Colossians as to why Paul considered Epaphras to be a faithful man. I find at least five in this letter. I don't have much time, so I'm going to run through these fairly quickly. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we see that the congregation had learned from Epaphras. The word there is the verb form of the word disciple. So Epaphras was a discipler. Now, disciplers, as you know, pour their lives into people. They invest in people. Steady, systematic, disciplined. It's done quietly. It's not glamorous. It doesn't grab the headlines. The believers in normal were growing week in and week out because Epaphras was a faithful discipler, a faithful teacher. It's one of the reasons Paul calls him faithful. By the way, the navigators in our day are are one of the probably most well-known discipleship ministries, which leads to another question. The NAV's best-known discipleship program is called what? Their 2-7 program took a screenshot off of their website, 
Can you read that? Their 2-7 series. It's been around for quite a long time, still very much alive and well, even today. So 2-7 is found where? In Matthew, right? No. In Colossians. Uh, let's look at it for, for just a moment. Start reading in, in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Now, who did the teaching, the rooting, the building up, the establishing? Certainly, Epaphras did. And I'm pretty sure others in this church did as well, because when you are being discipled, you tend to turn around and become disciplers as well. I find it striking that one of the most respected discipleship ministries in our day was named after the ministry of a small-town, first-century church located in Normal. So here's something for you to ponder. Could it be that a church smaller in size, and maybe even more a church located in a smaller community, has an advantage when it comes to discipling? Something to chew on. If you're going to take a question home with you today, that would be the question I'd like for you to think about after we leave here. Think about folks who attend large, big city churches. I was one. I grew up in Phoenix. I was in a, a mega church. Think about folks who attend churches like these. How well do they know each other? Do the pastor and church leaders even know their names? How much do they see each other during the week? How different it is when you're in a context of social intimacy where you rub shoulders with each other, not just on Sunday, but through the week, where you do life together, where iron can sharpen iron, where you can be mentoring by your life and by your words, Um, where accountability is greater because you live in a fishbowl, not all bad. What is that? That's discipleship. It's harder to do that, I think, in a larger setting. Can this kind of discipleship ministry happen in normal? And perhaps an even bigger question, can it happen if you are normal? I think some of us feel like, well, I'm just not very gifted, I'm not very smart. Well, you know, I think Epaphras was probably a pretty regular guy. He wasn't out on the speaking circuit like Paul. But he's being used of God in a discipling ministry, quietly making a difference in this little spot in the road. And I know that many of you are similarly faithful. You're pouring your lives into others. Some of you, maybe on Sunday morning, but... Maybe other times as well, maybe children's classes, youth ministry, small groups, one-on-one conversations over a cup of coffee. Maybe you don't think about this as being a discipling ministry, but it is. And those of you who have this kind of ministry, uh, it's, it's just an example of faithfulness. Chapter 1, verse 7, we find a second evidence of Epaphras' faithfulness. It says that he was a servant. 
Now, I don't have to tell you that us folks in normal have ample opportunities to exhibit this quality. There is carpet that needs vacuuming. Uh, there are rooms that need to be rearranged, set up for whatever's happening next. There are sidewalks that need sweeping or shoveling. There's bulletins that need to be typed, and on and on you could go. My friends, it is doing these kinds of things when no one's watching, where perhaps few express appreciation, where, when, when you're not drawing attention to yourselves, when you're not complaining, that gives evidence that we are servants. And being a servant is a characteristic of faithfulness in the eyes of God. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, uh, we see another couple of evidences of Epaphras' faithfulness. It says he was always struggling in prayer for his small church and community. The word that is used there is agonizing. It's often used in the context of a battle. So Paul knew, and Epaphras knew, that he was in a spiritual battle in his small town. It's the same word that was used of our Lord's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this isn't just normal praying. And verse 12 says that Epaphras prayed this way always, often, constantly agonizing in prayer for his little group of believers and for his community. Verse 13 says Epaphras was working hard, a fourth evidence of faithfulness. The word here means heavy toil to the extent of pain. When we are hard workers in obscure places where no one is watching, God sees us as being faithful. And I know I'm talking today to some hard workers, and I'm thinking here not primarily of what you do during the week, um, not your farm work or your factory work, um, but I'm talking about work in your church and community. Back at the RHMA home office, uh, I work with a former farmer. I don't think he's been here. His name is Kerry. Uh, he was actually a farmer when I was pastoring in Corn, Oklahoma, probably one of the hardest working guys I've ever met in my life. And I've been around blue-collar people all my life. My dad was a blue-collar guy. I've heard Kerry say several times that he sometimes goes home from his ministry day at the RHMA office more tired than he worked than when he worked 16 hours a day on his farm. Ministry can be hard work but it's an evidence of faithfulness. And then fifth, um, we know that Epaphras was a faithful leader uh, because, and and we don't have time to get into this here uh, this morning, but when folks in their church had a significant doctrinal question, and if we were to read Colossians, we would see that this was a church that was struggling with their understanding of Christology. When Epaphras saw that this was happening, he took it seriously. So serious that he traveled all the way to Rome to get counsel from Paul, a distance of a thousand miles. Epaphras loved his people so much, and he so badly wanted to keep his people from doctrinal error 
that would hinder their spiritual development and ultimately destroy the church. He, he So much so that he went to great lengths to make sure that that didn't happen. And I think that stirred up enormous respect in Paul for this man in, in Colossae and helped Paul conclude that he was a faithful man. Well, I commend uh, Colossians to you. Um, there's so much more that could be said. I would encourage you to go home and read this book in one sitting and read it through small town lenses. You'll probably read it differently than maybe you've ever read it before. Hopefully this morning, is, as you're listening, hopefully you're saying something or thinking something like, this really isn't rocket science. I think even I can do this. And with what kind of results? Epaphras and the Colossian church were being used of God to make a big difference in their small place and community. Normal can be a wonderful place to be used of God. It can be a wonderful place to grow in Christ, and it could be a wonderful place in which you're found faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that sometimes we are frustrated by normal. Maybe we're frustrated by the fact that we are normal, or maybe that our setting is normal, or maybe just the daily circumstances of life are normal. Lord, we pray that you will help us to see more and more that your power is more readily seen when working through people and places like us. So with that in mind, I pray that you will drive home the things that we have seen in this book here this morning. May these things comfort us, may they reassure us, and may they motivate us to greater faithfulness. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. And thank you. And I have so much power here this morning. I get.